We are in, again, Psalm 119. Perhaps you are tired of me saying that, but that's okay. Uh, We are nearing the end. I promise you, after this Sunday, uh, we won't be in Psalm 119, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, We are in Psalm 119, the second to the last stanza here in this hour. And then in the main service in the next hour, we're going to do the last stanza. Uh, And uh, I'm really excited to finish off this study. Uh, I am so encouraged by uh, going through this chapter and seeing... Uh, just how many times David can say the same thing. That's sort of been uh, a, a theme throughout. From the beginning of the study to now, we've sort of had this idea that he has this sort of repetitive monotony that's also really beautiful too, of just he's constantly repeating to himself that the word is sufficient, that the word is all he needs. And you can really see as we've gone through that... He, As we've said at the beginning, he's reminding himself that this is true. And that's why he's constantly reminding himself. Why? Because he's like you and I. He's forgetful. (laughs) He's uh, a person who is dealing with the ups and the downs, the ebbs and the flows of life. He's not this super spiritual, awesome Christian. (laughs) He's a man who struggles. He's a man who is weak. He's a man who has faith in God, yes, and he knows the truth. But he's also a man who struggles with having that really impact him on a daily basis. And so I I hope you're going to be encouraged by uh, these last two stanzas because I think they're really powerful, especially the last one. But this morning we are in the second to last stanza, beginning in verse 161. And really, um, um, here he talks about a really significant aspect of the Christian life, which I hope to get into and unpack. But let me just read the stanza for you, and then we'll kind of dive in and walk through it together. So David is writing, and he says in verse 161, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation, and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies, for all my ways are before Thee. So through this study, David, I think, or we have seen David's course, his life, his, again, those constant sort of reminders, the word is good, the word is true, the word is sufficient. And I pray that through this, you have found sort of a new appreciation for the word. And, and I think that, uh, I, I pray that you will. And I think that's exactly what David is trying to do. 168 times now, he's reminded himself of this truth. He's, he's seeking to impart in his own heart and life just the fact that the word of God isn't just something that he has. It's something that's essential. It's not just a part of his life, it's, and it's not just a, a habitual thing, it's an essential thing to his heart, to his life, to his soul. And I think he realizes this here, because what, I, what, what jumps out to me at, at, from this stanza is just David's realization that he is in a war, that he's in a struggle, he's in a battle. 
Yes, with those who are around him who are influencing him, but more so, as we will see, he's in a war with himself. He's in a war with his own soul. He's in a war with his own heart and what he desires and what he knows he should desire and the new desires that are implanted by the Spirit. And I think this is what we can say for all of us as believers. We are all in a battle. We are all at war. We are all in a constant sort of crusade against what our old flesh wants and against and for what the new man, as Paul talks about, the old and the new man, that new man, what he desires. And here I think in this stanza he talks about how he's going to prevail in that war, in that crusade. And notice, so notice verse 161. We'll just walk through these eight verses quickly. He recognizes and he expresses this frustration that he endures all this persecution from the outside. Notice he says, princes have persecuted me. And notice that phrase, without a cause. He is expressing just complete exhaustion and frustration at the fact that he is being made to endure this persecution without a cause, without a reason, without sort of uh, any purpose. It seems to him that it's in vain that these princes, these outside forces, these other peers of his that are attacking him, it appears as if they're doing it for no good reason. Yet he's being made to be grieved, tormented, for no other reason than his faith. Notice he says, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. You see here, I think this is what we've recognized uh, uh, several times already. But just the fact that faith in Jesus puts you in a position of being at war, at odds with the world. So Paul talks about that all throughout his epistles. He talks about that all throughout his letters to especially the church of Thessalonica and especially to his young, uh, <clears throat> his young protégés, Timothy and Titus. He talks about how suffering is part of the Christian faith. And here, he, David is sort of echoing the same thing, or perhaps Paul is echoing David, but David is saying the same thing, that I have an awe of thy word. That awe, that faith that he has puts him at odds with what the world, with what his peers perhaps who don't know the Lord, what they say and want and do. Notice, I love this because this is so, I think, relevant for me, and perhaps it's relevant for you too, is that even despite that persecution, that hardship, he doesn't give up on his awe. Notice he says, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. It doesn't matter. My heart is still going to be standing in awesome wonder at your word. Regardless of what those princes and peers may say to me, say about me, and uh, uh, slander me, and offend me. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to stand in awe. I pray that I have that heart. I pray that you have that heart too. That perhaps you have family members or loved ones that are, that are close to you, friends perhaps, co-workers, who don't know the Lord. And maybe they slander you. Maybe they uh, offend you by what they say. Maybe they make fun of you for your faith. Maybe they uh, tear you down. May we have the same sentiment as David. That it doesn't matter. My heart is still going to stand at awe of God's word. 
Despite all of this, I, I'm so I'm continually baffled by this because David was enduring a persecution that we perhaps do not uh, con- uh, consciously recognize or, or can imagine. And that here he's continually resorting to God's word. He's retreating to it for his comfort, for his consolation, for his confidence. Despite the fact that that very word is the reason why he's being made to suffer. <laughs> And yet he's still resorting to it. I think that's what I get out of uh, David's heart. Is that despite all that's around him, he wasn't discouraged or disheartened by going to the word. He was always encouraged by it. Because his awe was fixed on Jesus. The one that he knew would come from his line. Remember the promise from uh, First Chronicles, I think it's 17. First Chronicles 17 is, this is in my notes, but I love it. First Chronicles 17 is a fantastic chapter. Quick story. <clears throat> David wants to build God a temple. Remember that? He's coming to the end of his life, and he expresses his desire to God, I want to build you a house. And I love in that chapter that God says no. God says, no, you cannot build me a house. And we find out the reason there and later in 1 Chronicles 22 as well, that the reason why is he is a man, a king of war. So he's been barred from building God a house. There's blood on your hands, essentially, God says. And then God gives him a better promise. I think it's 1 Chronicles 17.10, where he talks about that God says, I'm going to build you a house. And the, the inference is, the implication is, it's going to be Jesus. You thought you were going to build me a kingdom. I'm going to build you a kingdom. And it's going to come through your line. It's going to be one of your sons. It's going to be the son of David. It's a better promise. It's a better promise than anything David can build for himself. It's something that God does. It's something that God does in his life. And this is the promise, I think, that David was striving to remember and striving to let impact him, that God was going to build him a house. And then, so look at verse 162 back in our text, because he says, uh, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. So not res- regardless of all the things that are, uh, all the commotion that's around him, the, the frustration that's around him, he's rejoicing in the word. But I love the picture that David evokes here, that David sort of conjures up by his words. He says, I rejoice at that word as one that findeth great spoil. That word spoil there, it means what you think. It means exactly what you think. It's like the spoils of war, sort of uh, that the possessions that are plundered and gained through conflict. You notice, notice what he's linking there. That all of the, of, the, of the great truths, the treasures of the word, I'm rejoicing over them as one that has come through conflict and has plundered something. <laughs> it evokes this image that, the, that all of what we gain through the word comes at great struggle. It's hearkening back again to that eternal, internal conflict in our hearts. That what the old man wants and what the new man wants are at odds. They're battling against each other. Your old man says everything is about me and it wants to be selfish and it wants all the desires of its flesh. And the new man says it wants to pursue what God wants and what God desires and what God says is true. 
Those things are at odds. Those things are at war. And he's saying that only as I struggle and engage in that war will I get the spoils of the scriptures. Will I get the spoils of what God has done. And this is the reason why he's rejoicing. Because he knew that these blessings are gained through conflict. Like the spoils of a long-fought war. You've heard that phrase. To the victor belong the spoils. To the victor of the war belongs all of the spoils of that war. Whatever it may be. And here we have a, a similar idea. That to the faithful though. In, in this context. To the faithful belong the spoils of the victor. Because here it's hearkening back to the idea that Jesus has won. And now as we read his word we're, getting, we're being made to enjoy the spoils of his victory. David was looking forward unto that victory. We look back unto that victory. But it's the same principle. That as we struggle against our old man. Struggle for the new man. We are made to enjoy the spoils of what Jesus has done for us. As one who, as he says, as one that findeth great spoil. This is our battle. And notice what he says in verse 163. He sort of uh, gives you insight onto what this battle looks like. He says, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Do you see there he's contrasting these two uh, fronts. I hate lying and I love your word. And I think, personally, I think this verse is best understood in two different senses. At least that first part where he says, I hate and I'm a whore lying. Yes, I definitely think he's troubled and he's frustrated by those around him who are lying. That are slandering him or slandering the truth, slandering his kingdom, slandering even his, his families and loved ones. But I think even to a greater degree, he's talking about his own lying heart. I hate and abhor the lying heart that still is in me. But your law, I love your law. Your law, your truth, your word, I love it. He's talking exactly about this battle (laughs) the lying that's in him and the law that he knows he should love he hates that there's still lying within his heart and mind and that there's lying that spews out from his lips but he knows and he's struggling for this love of the law this love of the word this love of the truth that he has been given and this is where we get to this uh, wonderful uh, Truth is, you know, the song, Onward Christian Soldiers. It's a true song. Except that we're not fighting against anyone outside of us. It's not like we're crusaders, like back in the days of the crusades, fighting for some sort of utopia that we think that we can bring in on ourselves. Onward Christian Soldiers, I think, is better understood as if we are soldiers marching on the wars in the hearts of ourselves. We are soldiers fighting on the battlefield of our hearts, fighting for belief in what God says is true, over against the lying that still resists, that still resists the truth, that still uh, plagues our hearts. We're onward Christian soldiers, yes, but we're at war with ourselves. Again, in that conflict between old and new. Put off the old man and put on the new man. 
This is what the gospel does. It puts us in this new uh, army, under new marching orders. And this, I think, is here what David is getting at, is that this war, again, hearkening back or hearkening forward unto Paul, I might say, is that we are not waging war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the spiritual uh, forces in dark places. That's a paraphrase, but you get the picture. We're not fighting against people and making sure that our way wins. We're fighting against ourselves because why? We know that Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. He's already secured the victory. And as David has already said, we are being made to enjoy the spoils of his victory. We are at war with ourselves. For that battle of of not listening to the lying that's still in our heart from the old man. And listening to the new man who is empowered by the truth. And this, I think, is the truth of what David is getting at. He's fighting, he's struggling for this, this conquest, this crusade in his own heart and soul. And you can see, you can see what David is, is, is um, struggling to believe, but you also see what, what he knows is how he's going to win. He says, thy law do I love. The more we are informed of God's word, the more purposeful our sort of battle and discipline and hatred of the sin that's still in our lives will be. So he's engaging in this conflict. But notice verse 164, because this is exactly how he's going to engage in this conflict. Notice he says, seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. He's spending time in the word. He's spending time in the truth. He's spending time uh, knowing what God's word says. What says about him, what says about him, about God himself. What it says about what this promise will be and do and become. It's a testament to David's love for this word. And I don't think it's a literal seven times. I think he's being a little bit hyperbolic. He's just saying he's in a constant state of praise and thankfulness and gratitude because of what God has done. Just like he said back in verse 147. If you look at 147 and 148, you remember where he's talking about how he's preventing the night and he's preventing the morning. He says, I prevented the dawning of the morning and cried. I hoped in thy word. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in, the, in thy word. I think there were definitely times when he was, you know, sort of burning the midnight oil. He was burning both ends of the candle, so to speak, struggling for peace and assurance in here, but it was also conveying this idea that he's in a, he's in a state of mind, in a struggle for faith, and he's constantly going back to this word of faith because he knows that's where all of his reinforcements are. And he's struggling and fighting for this belief to stay in this mindset of gratitude, of thankfulness. Of praise, he says. Seven times a day do I praise thee. Why? Because of your judgments. His judgments that are righteous. He says, all, notice the effect of what this discipline does for him. Notice the next verse, 165. He says, great peace have they which love thy law. He has already said that he is one who loves the law. And he says, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. This is the effect of the word. 
This is the effect of this truth, of this Bible that you have in front of you, that the more that you read it, the more uh, uh, realized your peace will be. This is what the Word does to us. It produces gratefulness, as David has already expressed. It, it produces rest. It produces contentment. All bound up in that one word, peace. It's settled. It's satisfied. The struggle for, uh, for winning something or attaining something or achieving something is at peace. The struggle against uh, evil is at peace. Why? Because we know and we have been given the peace of God. This is what God gives us. Throughout his word, David was only having half of what we have. We have the full revelation of God. We know the ending. There's nothing more that the word produces than just peace to our souls. To those who know the word, they have this word of peace. And it comes, as Paul says, I think it's Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the God of peace. I think it's actually, no, it's Philippians 4. Has the God of peace, remember it's Philippians 4, I think it's like 6 through 8, where he's talking about how the God of peace will impart the peace of God. And he says there that it will keep you, it will guard you, it will garrison you, is essentially what he's saying. If that's exactly what the word does, the word of God imparts the peace of God by showing us the God of peace. Who keeps us, who secures us, who makes us to come at rest. To come at, at rest for, uh, because of what he says. But I love the fact that he says, Great peace have they which love thy law. You know, remember he said that he is one who loves the law. This peace, we have to note, it doesn't come by just, uh, it just doesn't just appear Again, this is the spoil of the scripture. It's the spoil of the great conflict that we have with ourselves. As we read the word and we reject and re resist listening to the old man and we listen to the new man, what happens? We become uh, peaceful, grateful Christians. It happens as a natural byproduct of engaging in the conflict, in the war, in the crusade for our souls. A byproduct of that is peace. Why? Because you cannot read the scriptures without coming away from it, recognizing, rejoicing, and reveling in the fact that God has already won. So David is in the word. He's struggling for this rest and peace. And he comes out of it knowing what? God's going to win. He is sovereign. He is a way better king. He is the one who is going to make all things new and right. Why? Again, 1 Chronicles 17. He's going to build me a house. He knows. And he's struggling to know and to remind himself that this peace, it comes after the conflict within myself. <laughs> After the Spirit is doing His work. After the Spirit is doing His sort of pruning of us. And this is the benefit that we have from the gospel. It's the benefit that we have from the truth of God. And I think this is the greatest motive for Christian living. Knowing that everything is already settled. Knowing that everything is already settled for you. It's satisfied. 
Such as what Charles Bridges, the commentator we've been uh, referencing throughout the study, he says this, active devotedness flows from assured acceptance. Where there is no certainty, there can be little love, little delight, little diligence. So I love that picture that he is sort of leaning into there. If there's no assurance that what you are doing for God, like it, let me explain it this way. If there's no assurance that you're already accepted, then all of the things that we do for God, what are they going to be motivated by? By trying to win his favor. They're, they're sort of uh, things done to try and get something, to, prove, to, uh, to win something. They're almost as if it's a deed done for a reward. Let me get your favor by uh, rewarding my devotional life, by my church attendance, by whatever. But you see, the promise of the gospel is acceptance already assured. So then uh, all of our good deeds for God, they don't win something, they prove something, they show something. They show something that's already there. It's a proving of what's already been given to you. It's the peace of God that's given to you already before you've even done anything. And it frees us to love God. As he says in Ephesians chapter 2.10, that he has made us his masterpieces. And that he has given us these good works beforehand to do. They come out of peace that he's given us. Out of the assurance of his acceptance. The assurance of his acceptance by the fact that he has died for us. That's what frees us, liberates us, causes us, motivates us. To those good works, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. This is, to me, the greatest inspiration to live for God. is the fact that my reconciliation with God is already settled. It's sealed. It's done. I don't have to try and... and uh, we struggle with assurance. I, I don't know how many of you have ever... Or you, maybe you've had like uh, friends or peers uh, or whatever as you were growing up perhaps struggle with assurance of salvation. I think that's a real thing. Many people struggle with that. They struggle with, am I really saved because of something that I've done in my past or the things that I'm still struggling with? I think the great thing is to know that our assurance isn't up to us. It's up to something that God has already done. Your assurance of salvation is already settled in what Jesus has already done for you 2,000 years ago. That's where your assurance lies. Not in your ups and downs of here and now. It's 2,000 years ago where Jesus paid for all our sins. That's your assurance. That's your peace, which gives you the confidence and boldness now to serve and to love God. See, the more... Assured, the more affectionate, the more passionate we are for this uh, once-for-all, done, settled reconciliation of our hearts to God, the more determined, the more decisive will be our faith, will be our walk for God and with God. And this is the good news. The good news of God inspires peace and confidence precisely because it informs us that Christ has warred for us and won the war on our behalf. That's the peace and the confidence. The crusade for our souls is won not by us, but by Jesus. Remember, I think it's Philippians 
where he talks about he is going to perform this thing until the day he comes back. He's going to perform it. He is going to do it. He is going to perform this good work in you. Reminding you that he is already one. He's going to do that work till he comes back. This is what the word informs us of. This is what David is reminding himself of. And I love how he ends this stanza. Notice the last three verses. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies for all my ways are before thee. I love, this is sort of a sort of finishing prayer to uh, this stanza here. And he's sort of capping this off by sort of uh, expressing this hopeful vow to God. I will, I have, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Is sort of, he's expressing to God what he hopes to accomplish in his heart and life. That he hopes in what the word says and he loves what the word says and he's going to vow now to keep what the word says. Which, a little teaser, read this stanza and then read the last stanza and you'll get two very different pictures of the same man. Which is what we're going to look at in the next hour. But I love David's mindset. I love his confidence. I love his his only purpose here. Is to be reminded of the great peace that the word gives him. That the word grants to him. And it comes out of that struggle. Resisting the old man and believing in the new. Resisting the old Adam we could say. And believing in the second Adam. Listening to what the second Adam tells us. This is what the word of God does. It grants us peace from agonizing over all of the adversity and all the struggle and all of those persecutions as we talked about earlier. We are free to not agonize over that. Knowing that God's already won and that that's a part of the life of faith. The war is over. God has won. Jesus is the champion, the one who is the victor in the crusade for our souls. May God be praised. Let us pray.